What's going on guys? It's Michael Hunter. This is the ACC Basketball Report coming at you on the 23rd of February. Another batshit crazy edition of college basketball took place yesterday. I, I don't even know. You know, San Diego State loses, Gonzaga loses, West Virginia loses, Oklahoma loses to Oklahoma State. Uh, Georgia Tech goes on the road, plays a brilliant first half. Moses Wright, 33, 31 points, either way a career high uh, against Syracuse. Georgia Tech leads by 11 at the break and just pisses it away. I, you know, I, I don't really know what to say anymore. It's, it's not worth bad-mouthing anybody about. It's just there needs to be a change. Things need to change, and it's not just the coaching level I, 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 as far as a, a difference that needs to happen. It's just... It's a mentality around the program. It's the expectation of the program. I think the the administration needs to make an investment in that program, similarly to the way they've done football. And I think once the funds are there, hopefully uh, Athletic Director Stansbury will, will make the correct call there and, and get Georgia Tech basketball back to, I'm not going to say where it has been historically because that's really not accurate. You know, Georgia Tech basketball has been good under Kremens. They were decent under Hewitt. Other than that, historically, the program is not exactly where you'd like it to be. But, you know, the, the possibilities are there. The, the ground is fertile. You know, we need, we need to make that happen. And I, I hope Stansberry is the man for that job. Anyway, this isn't a Georgia Tech podcast. This is an ACC podcast, which, you know, another interesting day in the league yesterday. I'm going to about to, uh, to fire up the... Uh, the uh, what is it Notre Dame Miami game today, which should be interesting from a standpoint as you know Notre Dame is looking for an NCAA tournament berth. So is that uh, is that going to be something that is that is helped or hurt today? And going by that team, it's very difficult to project what that Notre Dame team is gonna is gonna do on any given day. So um if there you know the the more days that pass it looks more and more like the ACC is a four bid league to me um North Carolina State's performance yesterday certainly leads me in that direction I think that most analytics and, and projection people have them in the in the in the field right now but I'm not sure how if that's a good thing other than you know monetarily for people in the league because I don't think NC State just they just don't have their shit together to to put it bluntly. Um, you know Virginia finally puts that last nail in Pittsburgh's coffin yesterday. Uh, Syracuse at fifteen and twelve. We're going to talk about that today with my guest. Who, um, if you guys failed to read the, uh, the the title of today's podcast, is Eric Haslam, owner founder of uh, of Haslametrics, who is you know a, a very good friend of mine. I've I've gotten to know Eric quite well over the past couple of years we appear weekly on uh, on the the rock and pregame in lubbock texas at uh, rock 101 fm and uh just just a a, a class guy a nice guy a, a, a just a a decent human being you know what i mean he's he's a guy that you kind of gravitate to because he he knows basketball he's very intelligent he speaks intelligently in a plethora of of different areas regarding the game and he's just a generally a nice guy so you know he's very very gracious and and just a guy that i've really that i really enjoy knowing a guy that you're you're thankful to have met since i started acc basketball report he's very supportive of all of us in the rockin uh 25 poll as well so just a, pl- a pleasure to have him on i think i've had him on before with sean 
Um, but uh, I can't be sure if that was this show or one of the other hundred times we've appeared together. So uh, great conversation with Eric. Uh, just got it wrapped up a little while ago, and uh, I hope you guys really enjoy. We talk about the ACC to kick it off, and then we split out and go go nationwide and talk about basically everything so I, I really hope you guys enjoy it um it's about an hour long a little bit longer than i usually go but i i tell you that it's it's definitely worth it it's a good listen and i hope you guys enjoy so here he is eric hasm Farrell turns the key drives the lane with three on the shot clock doesn't get it five seconds to play down the floor a kogi Mr. Hunter, how are you doing? Hey, are you, is your phone from Maine? Am That's, I seeing that right? This is correct. Yes, sir. I, uh, you know, I, I lived there for, for, I want to say the first 29 years of my life and just never changed ah. it, so. Oh, interesting. I saw that and I was like, is this going to be Michael? And I'm guessing it is. <laughs> Millie Knockett or something like that? Uh, Milo, yeah. Okay. Never heard of it. No, you shouldn't. It's about, uh, it's about as big as the subdivision that I currently live in, so. <laughs> Not very big. <laughs> About uh, twenty five hundred people. No, no traffic lights. So, oh my god, yeah, that is pretty small. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I appreciate you taking so, the time, man. Thank you. No, no problem. I've got a ton of notes here, so hopefully we'll be able to cruise through this and, and it'll make. Uh, 45, 60 minutes feels like about 10, so perfect. that's usually the idea. Perfect. So uh, for those of you who may not know, uh, Eric runs the site Haslometrics.com, which is a analytical site that I'm sure if you follow me, you follow him, so this is uh, not a stranger to you guys, but uh, today we're going to uh, we're gonna profile a couple of bubble teams from the ACC. Uh, we're going to talk about maybe uh, who you can and cannot trust from the ACC, and then we're going to go a little bit nationwide and... Uh, and get his thoughts on what is yet again been an absolutely batshit crazy weekend as far as college basketball goes. So, Eric, you ready? I'm absolutely ready. All right, let's uh, let's profile a few bubble teams real quick out of the ACC. Um, two, I think, have a pretty good shot. I'm not sure about the third. But uh, NC State had an opportunity yesterday, uh, failed to close out the game. Where do you see the Wolfpack and what can they do, I guess, uh, you know, to solidify themselves inside the tournament. I think they're currently probably out, but uh, where do you see the Wolfpack? Well, actually, I have them in right now, and granted, I use a, a, a few different metrics. That's why I call them the, the Bracketology Deserves. I actually have them in a Dayton play-in game right mm-hmm. now. Um, and I think they the big reason they got in, they climbed back up into it, and they were right around the seventh team out or sixth team out, and all of a sudden they made a gigantic jump. When they beat Duke, um, that was kind of the one that took them back in. But all of a sudden, now you've had another loss. Now they're really kind of teetering on the brink. So I think they're probably one of those teams that I think should be in right now. Uh, they're number 53 for me in performance ranking. That's fifth in the ACC, 52nd in record quality. Um, there's, you know, I, I use different metrics than what uh, the net would possibly use. So I'm used looking at three, you know, an even three and three record versus the top fifty. Mm-hmm. We're looking at classic quadrant one. They're four and three. Regular quadrant one. They're four, uh, five, and four. Um, I, I, I think they're a quality team. I don't think they stand out in one particular area. They're not even top fifty in either efficiency, offensive, or defensive. But they're right there, right around that fifty mark. Um, in my opinion, I think they're close. They're probably better off than a couple of the other ACC teams we're going to talk about here. What does what does a you, you, you mentioned the Duke game? Um, obviously, they get a huge win at home, twenty two points. I know that the the margin of victory is is in there somewhere, but it's capped at ten. What does 
What is a good win like the Duke win? How does that compare to a, a loss that isn't damning, such as the Florida State loss? Because that's a good loss. I mean, certainly nobody's going to give you hell for losing to Florida State, but how bad does does the loss impact you when compared to a good win like that? Well, the loss can impact you in a couple of ways. I mean, if you actually play a really, really good team and lose by one or in an overtime or something like that, from a performance ranking standpoint, you can actually climb. Um, if you're like, for example, if there's a, if you're a team that like North Carolina State's going to go on the road and play at Duke or something like that, you're probably going to be expected to lose by close to double digits. Mm-hmm. If you push them to the brink and play them into overtime, that's going to reflect very positively on your performance ranking, which does factor in to my bracketology deserves. At the same time, the ultimate goal is again to always win the game. <laughs> so if you're losing the game, no matter how you play, you got to take into account the fact that you did lose the game, and there is a minimum penalty at the very. I mean, if you lose to a team like team like Duke, you, you know you're looking to go. That's a top five team. You can't really blame them. But from a from a resume standpoint, you kind of have to administer this minimum minimum penalty for any particular loss. So in a game like that, if you play a team tough, you're going to be able to climb in the performance ranking, which is going to help you. But at the same time, you're going to probably give all that away by giving you know having a loss in the resume category. So it kind of evens itself out. The Duke game was really helpful, the one where they won by 22, uh, because that's again, not only did they you know, score a huge resume win, but that also reflects greatly on them in the performance ranking. Like, you know, When it comes to performance ranking, you're going to do a comparison, a transitive comparison across the board against every other team that has played Duke earlier this season. And obviously Duke, as good as they are, that's going to reflect very positively on NC State in a number of ways because there aren't many teams that were able to challenge Duke, let alone beat them up by 20-plus like NC State did. So when you look at the rest of North Carolina State's schedule, I guess, uh, heading into the ACC tournament. They have Carolina and Chapel Hill, Pittsburgh at home, Duke at Cameron, and then Wake Forest at home. Uh, assuming they are able to go 3-1, and one, obviously the Carolina game is, is a rivalry game that can go either way. You know, neither, you know, well, none of North Carolina, Pittsburgh, or Wake Forest are really all that good. If they do go 3-1, and one, assuming they lose to Duke, is that going to boot? Are the wins enough just to boost their, their rankings, or do they need maybe some outside help? I think when you're at this point, if you hold serve, I think they're going to hold position. So I think they're going to probably be right around that. You know, if they beat North Carolina, Pittsburgh, and Wake Forest, and you lose that Duke, I think they're going to be right there in a similar spot, maybe sitting on that 11 line or something like that, but it's going to go right to the tournament. And all of a sudden, if you play your first game in the ACC tournament and, and you drop a stink bomb and lose by 20 to somebody you're not supposed to be losing to, that can change the dynamic of everything. I think that Duke game is going to be really their opportunity to punch their ticket. Um, that's going to be really tough, obviously, to win at Duke. But if you know all these other games are very, very winnable, two of them at home, so if they take care of their business there, they're going to be in pretty good position that if they go in the ACC tournament and win the games they're supposed to win, they're going to be in pretty decent shape, in my opinion. So moving into a team that plays today, um, Notre Dame is going, to, is going to tip with Miami here in the next few hours. 16-10 and 10 overall, 7-8 and eight in the ACC. Um, five fairly weak games left, with, with the exception being uh, Florida State coming up on March 4th. You know, you see kind of their first four out, next four out, similar, you know, similar situation in North Carolina State in that somewhat similar position. What, uh, what, what do your metrics say about the Irish, and do they have the profile to go up against other bubble teams like uh, Wisconsin or Michigan out of the Big Ten? 
I, I'm far more down on Notre Dame than I am on NC State. I mean, if you look at the performance ranking, they're right. They're really close to each other. NC State's 53rd and Notre Dame is 55th. A little bit of a drop in record quality, 67th in record quality for Notre Dame as opposed to 52nd for NC State. Um, I think the biggest problem for me, and I'm looking again, I'm using different um, rankings against elite competition than, say, the selection committee would be using. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you're looking at two and six in quadrant one. That's no, Notre Dame, not very good. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm looking at classic quadrant one because it's calculable. I can't calculate the, the net, so I'm still using the RPI to give me an idea of where they are. But if you look at where they are in classic quadrant one, 0 oh and 6. If you're looking at teams uh, playing against teams in my top 50, 0 oh and 6. And I think that's a killer for Notre Dame. I, we've seen this in the past with the selection committee. When they can't hang their hat on real wins, it's really hard for them to justify getting in the in the field when they're right there on the fringe. And even if you look at that quadrant one record, their wins, you're hanging your head on wins over Syracuse and Clemson, and that's it. Yeah. Um, and that's a problem. That's a big-time problem for Notre Dame. I think, um, whereas NC State is in the field, I think Notre Dame is well well out of the field. They're not listed um, on my top eight out, and if I listed another eight, they still wouldn't show up. Um, now, they, they do have some games coming up. They've got some winnable opportunities, but there's nothing outside of a game against Florida State. I don't think there's anything that's really going to really open anybody's eyes. You got Miami, you got uh, Boston College, you got Wake Forest, mm-hmm. you finish, you have FSU, and then you finish the season against uh, Virginia Tech. Not exactly murderers row there, with the exception of the Seminoles. <laughs> so I think even if they take care of business, I think they've got a long way to go to get back in it. As uh, as has become tradition, I guess in recent years, Syracuse. I, you know, I think they were a little bit more bubblicious uh, a few weeks ago towards the end of January when they were 13-7 and 6-3 and three in the league. Since then, lost five games out of seven. Um, did, you know, over overcome an 11-point halftime deficit yesterday to beat Georgia Tech at home. Currently sit at 15-12, and 8-8 eight and eight in the league. Uh, a very favorable schedule down the, down the stretch with Pitt, North Carolina, Boston College, and Miami. Um, could potentially be looking at 19-12 and 12 with... With a, a, a you know a chance to not have to play on that first day in the ACC tournament, is Syracuse going to be on the right side of the bubble, or is this going to be another kind of a disappointing year for for the Orange? I think it's going to be a disappointing year for the Orange. In fact, I have them across the board. I think basically across the board, even worse than Notre Dame uh, from a performance ranking standpoint, record quality standpoint. They're only eighty eighth. Uh, the records against the top 50 are the same kind of problem, one and six versus the top 50, one and five classic quadrant one, two and seven in quadrant one. You know, you, you can hang your head on that Virginia victory, which is nice now because Virginia is kind of coming around playing better basketball. you got to win against Notre Dame. But again, it's it's there's just not enough there. They're not even in my top 20 out of the field right now. So you're going to have to, if they, if they had Duke coming up and Florida State coming up and Louisville coming up and all of a sudden you s- somehow sweep all of those are win two or three, you might have a shot. But what, you know, again, what you have coming up for Syracuse, Pittsburgh, North Carolina, Boston College, Miami, not a lot of opportunities to really make a dent as far as impactful victories. And I think that's going to hold Syracuse down. I think they're going to, ha- I mean, if you win those four, you can probably climb closer, but then you've got to really make an impact in the ACC tournament as well. And based on what I'm seeing from the Syracuse team this year, Already with twelve losses and an eight and eight record in conference, I just don't see it happening. So if they go, I, I think you know I, I'm, I'm with you on all three teams so far. I think NC State's the most likely, the most likely to make the tournament. I think Syracuse is the least likely to make the tournament. With Notre Dame probably 
probably being an out as well, especially when you compare their their record again and their resume against some other teams. So say Syracuse, which I think overall has maybe a higher ceiling than Notre Dame, which is which is kind of crazy considering you know their roster. I think Notre Dame has the better roster, but I think Syracuse is probably the better team. Nineteen and twelve, say for instance, twelve and eight in the ACC heading into the tournament. You know if they're if they're able to you know, get by a team like Miami or something on the first on, in the first round and then beat a team, say, Virginia, in the second round. Is there enough meat on that bone to, to think that Syracuse could get in the dance? So I think that would take you to probably mean and you'd assume you'd lose afterwards. You'd take them to 21-13. and 13. Mm-hmm. I don't really look at conference record because we've seen that in the past. Mm-hmm. That conference mm-hmm. record, I think, of the Nebraska team two years ago that I really liked a lot. They were, what, 11-5 and five in conference. Um, but they just were, were left out, even though they were really solid in conference. They didn't have enough meat on the bone as far as the uh, the teams that they've beaten. But I think what's going to come back to, to bite Syracuse, and this is why I think even if you win, you know, you go six and one the rest of the way, mm-hmm. it's still going to be tough because who are they going to beat? I mean, you can possibly improve your quadrant run one record. To, you know, I don't know if you can get a, a third win out of that or a fourth win out of that, but I, I just. I, I just don't see enough there that they're going to be able to do it. And, and from a standpoint of realistically seeing them go six and one the rest of the way, I have my doubts about that as well. Our, when we talk about the quadrant wins, when you get into conference tournament type play, what is what what defines a quad one, quad two win as far as neutral site location in a conference tournament? Well, it's going to be the same way. It's, I mean, quarter one wins are going to be always be taken based on what their the net ranking is, and the net ranking. I don't think I don't know if that's updated every day or when it's updated every day. But that but there's the different classifications as hey, this is a neutral court game, this is an away court game, and then if you're in the top twenty five teams or top forty teams, it's the quarter one. Uh, nothing's going to change as far as that goes. It's going to be the uh, the same way you treat things during the regular season. It's just that the game is going to be on a neutral court site. Um, so in this situation, I, like I said, I don't think there's going to be enough opportunity, unless you have Syracuse really going on a run and then taking down a Louisville, and I, I don't know if they're going to get a shot at more than one of these top three teams in the, in the ACC, uh, namely Duke and Louisville and Florida State. It, you know, it, if they beat one, you, you know, you're probably in the championship game, and you're just like, well, just win the championship game, and if you lose the title game, you know, it'll be dicey at that point, but there's a lot of assumptions at this point that they're going to actually win all four of these yeah. last regular season games, and that's probably a really big assumption. You, you mentioned Especially the, with three of them on the road. Yeah, three of them are on the road, too, is that, I believe. I, yeah, I think there's three on the road. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the top three, which would be Louisville, Duke, and, and uh, Louisville, Duke, Florida State. Uh, Virginia kind of hanging out there, I think, in its, in its own tier, kind of a step below those three. Of those top three, in your mind, do any of them have... I mean, I think certainly they've all shown flaws this season. Florida State sometimes struggles to to score the basketball. Louisville struggles whenever Jordan Morris uh, struggles. And, you know, Duke looks like a team that's full of freshmen at some time. Um, Do you think that any of these three have a legitimate shot at a Final Four or the title? I think they all do. And I think it's uh, kind of namely because of the, the season that we're looking at with so much parity. My opinion is on Final Four teams. I love teams with experience. I love teams with shooting ability. You look at that team last year that was Virginia. They were number one in the country and adjusted three-point percentage on my website at the end of the year. Two years ago, the Villanova team, which in my mind was kind of the best and the, the, the biggest separator between number two. They were far and away the best team. That was a team that shot, uh, they were number three in the country and adjusted three-point percentage. The year before that, 
it was a little bit down. That was the North Carolina team. They were 35 in uh, 35th in three-point percentage. But they were absolute monsters on the offensive glass, and they were very well seasoned. You remember that was a team with Kennedy Meeks yep. and Justin Johnson and, and Isaiah Hicks and a young Luke May. Um, they had a lot of experience there. So if you go down the list, you know, you start with Duke. Um, you, you know, they have the talent, but I always have my issue with underclassmen heavy teams yes. playing seasoned veterans in the NCAA tournament. I think Duke... Well, we saw that last year with as much talent as they had. They struggled with a, with an experienced Central Florida team. They struggled with an experienced Virginia Tech team. Now with this year, it's going to be much more of the same. You've got Cassius Stanley, Wendell Moore, Matthew Hurt, Vernon Carey. All freshmen, it's really hard for Krzyzewski to coach, to implement a system when he's forced to rely on talent because the guys are in and out so quickly. And that being said, you don't have the experience. You, you don't really have the shooting. They're 41st right now in three-point percentage. Now, granted, they are monsters on the offensive glass, like mm-hmm. that North Carolina team. They're top 10 there. But I probably, of the three, I almost probably would have the most question about Duke's chances of getting there just because, you know, with Louisville, you've got the experience. You've got the top five players are, uh, are upperclassmen. Top five scorers are upperclassmen. Um, they're fours in three-point percentage. you got Laura shooting 42%, McMahon shooting 42%. And then for Florida State, they've also got pretty good experience when you got uh, Trent Forrest leading the charge, great player on both ends. And then from a three-point shooting perspective, they're 22nd, not fantastic, but you do have a guy like Devin Feldrott shooting 43%, 13 points a game. Um, I, I still think the ceiling and the chances on Louisville and Florida State, looking at that from, from that standpoint, are a little bit better than Duke that doesn't have the experience and doesn't have the shooting ability. You uh, you sent out a tweet this morning, and you and I have discussed this in you know off-air conversations a couple of times. Where I've been slightly curious. I think you know the analytics across the board, whether it be yours or 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 Ken's or or anybody really, the analytics and the metrics really dislike Boston College, even though they're what I would consider to be a surprising seven and nine in league play this year. Um, granted, it's a down ACC, but you know. They, they've performed fairly well in conference. Why do the metrics dislike Boston College so much? And that's going to be an easy one. It's going to be the margin of victory. And like you said, Boston College is 7-10 and 10 in the ACC, so on the surface it doesn't appear too bad. And they plummeted after, after yesterday all the way down to number 180 in my performance rankings. The next closest ACC team is Wake Forest at 113. Wow. So they're far and away the worst. And you go, well, how is that the case when they're 7-10 and 10 in conference? Well, here's, here's the reason why. In their seven wins, here's the margin, the margins of victory in their seven wins. Seven, one, a seven point win, which was a good one over Virginia. Mm-hmm. Five, one, four, which was actually, you know, actually zero because it went to overtime versus Virginia Tech. And then three against NC State. If you look at the losses, here's the margin of victory or margin of defeat in their losses. Ready for this? Mm-hmm. 39, 19, <laughs> 26, 18. Two, uh, they had a two-point loss at Pitt. 17, 8, 27, 13, and 18. And so that is really what kills them. I mean, when Boston College loses, when they go down, they go down in flames. <laughs> and, and, and that's what the performance rankings do. They, you know, they, if you look at their resume, their resume is probably a little bit better. But when you look at those performance rankings, which are largely based on performance, they strip out the wins and losses and say, on average, how are you performing? You know, in their, those wins, 
they're winning by an average of, say, I don't know, three, four points a game. In those losses, they're losing by an average of somewhere in the neighborhood of 20. And I think that just absolutely murders them in that regard. So for for a fun exercise, and, and, and we've, again, something else we've talked about off air recently, you know, this week there was a, a large conversation regarding analytics, the eye test, what you see as far as, you know, on the court and, and maybe compared to, you know, what the computer sees. So if, real quick, if you want to take off your analyst hat, put on the eye test hat, is there a team in your metrics that maybe the, the computers don't like, but when you watch them play, you think this is a quality team that, that deserves more more merit than what they're receiving? Well, the one that just stands out to me is uh, uh, the analytics don't like Kentucky. And the reason why they don't like Kentucky is obviously because, and, and I've seen this the last few years with Kentucky, is that they come out of the gates for whatever reason. They come out so slow. Mm-hmm. And they struggle. And I, I can't explain why, because Duke you know, has a similar situation as Kentucky with a lot of young guys. But I don't know what, what it is about Calipari's teams, especially the last three years that have, they, they've really struggled in November. So if you remember, you have a team, that, they have that loss at Rupp Arena to an Evansville team mm-hmm. who is now 275th in the country. Ooh. And that is, I mean, brutal, brutal how you lose that game to a team that, that's bad. But it wasn't just that game. You lose a neutral court game to Utah, who's number 111. You don't really play hard against UAB, and you win that game, but it's, you know, UAB's 198. You beat a Utah Valley team who's, two, you know, number 237. You beat them in Rupp Arena by only eight points. These, the, the problem is, how much do you want, you know, it's, it's really difficult to say, I'm going to throw this out or I'm going to keep this in. And from an analytical standpoint, you kind of have to look at it and go, I can't exactly just arbitrarily throw this one out because I feel like it. So, what you try to do is you try to, you know, take the, the recent games, um, weight them a little bit heavier, and then kind of start, you know, looking at the, the past games and saying, I'm going to start uh, de-weighting them. And that's what I do with my performance rankings. In mm-hmm. fact, a game that happened yesterday, a, a game burns off 1.5% of its value with every passing day. So that Evansville game all of a sudden carries far less weight than it once did. That being said, there are enough of those performances early on in the season that it really does dock Kentucky. And it's not just with my analytics. If you look at a lot of different analytics out there, Kentucky also comes in lower. And a lot Mm -hmm. of people go, well, come on. Obviously, Kentucky's better than that. I think that's probably true. I think from a ceiling standpoint, I think Kentucky definitely has a higher ceiling than anybody around that number 30 mark. But because of those early results that really cost Kentucky, I think I think when they're motivated, that Kentucky's a team very much like UCLA was with Ball and Leaf and Welsh, I think three or four years ago, I believe it was three years ago, mm-hmm. when they had so much talent, but they were only motivated to me, it, it seemed like 35, 40% of the time. And Kentucky is that same problem. Kentucky goes out there and it just doesn't, they, it seems like they sleepwalk against teams like Vanderbilt uh, in, in South Carolina when they shouldn't be sleepwalking. And then they finally wake up and they go, okay, we're going to get our act together. Mm-hmm. That UCLA team was the same way a few years ago. And if you remember, they ended up winning a couple games. And I think they ducked out in the uh, um, the regional semifinals. Would not surprise me one bit to see Kentucky have the same fate this year. So one thing that's interesting to me is, and, and again, that's something else that we've talked about. You know, the computers are they're reliant on basically hard facts, hard truths. 
and, and, and data, obviously. So how do you how do you approach? Because I I know how you vote as far as as the Rock and Twenty Five goes. I'm mostly eye test guy with with what I see and, and, and some resume stuff is kind of how I, I put my top twenty five together. This week, you know, I, I moved Kansas into the number one spot, moved Baylor out. How do you approach how you vote for your top twenty five team when you see? A team like Baylor is is a, a very good example. I think twenty two straight wins, but over the past I don't know three weeks or so haven't really been overly impressive. Do you just do you just trust what the computer says, or how much does what you actually see on the television impact how you vote? Yeah, man. When it comes to the voting for the Rock in twenty five, my stuff goes based all in on analytics, and I look at the the AP top twenty five as a as a kind of a reward system. Um, meaning that it, is it the best 25 teams, you know, is number one better than number two? Is number two better than number three? Mm-hmm. I don't really believe they vote that way. I think it's kind of a reward system. And that's kind of the way I vote myself. I could go straight performance rankings, or I could go straight based on my record quality um, uh, metric, which is basically another word for resume, mm-hmm. the wins and the losses. So what I try to do is I mix them. I go 50-50, and you, you mix the record quality ranking with the performance ranking, and then you split the two, and then that's kind of the order I go with. And the reason I do that is because I think we've got enough guys in the group, uh, among them yourself and Eli and, and Kevin and Lucas and, and the other guys who really give you the eye test perspective. Mm-hmm. I think it's really nice to have that analytical perspective, and I think guys like myself and, and Andy Dikoff, he we're the ones who kind of give you that analytical perspective to chime in there, give you that, as we, where we attempt to give you that, objective look even though nothing is really objective sure. um it's kind of the one of the well, i just like to plug it in and say you know this is what the analytics are telling me i believe in the system this is what i'm going to throw in there but at the same time i am the first person to say there's a lot of people who will ask the question of do you think we should go all in on analytics and i go absolutely not because the eye test is very important the eye test can reveal things that the analytics cannot i mean i i think of the teams that i, uh, I think it was two years ago when SMU and Minnesota were really, really powerful teams at the start of the season, then all of a sudden a lot of there were either injuries or there were suspensions, and all of a sudden these teams that got beat by SMU and Minnesota early in the season took a hit because SMU and Minnesota dropped off, mm-hmm. and were you know at the end were like quarter three losses, but in the early on in the season they were completely different teams, and I think the selection committee is able to look at that and go, yes, we're going to account for that. We want to adjust a little bit based on that. Or, you know, another situation would be the Bonzi Colson situation. When Bonzi Colson came back, from, you know, he was injured. All of a sudden, he comes back late in the year. The reason why they showed up in that first four out that one year, as opposed to not even being mentioned whatsoever, was because Bonzi Colson was back, and that Notre Dame team was supposed to be a much better team than what they had been playing mm-hmm. without him. So... I, I do this, and I, I've been fairly open with it. Is there ever a team or maybe an example that that you, you kind of go off book on as far as when you vote, you maybe bump them from, maybe you want to put them at 18, but you put them at 11 just to give them more points, give them a little bit more recognition. I know I did it with Wofford last year, I think, in order to to kind of guarantee that they were a little bit you know, where I wanted them, I guess, and then we're rocking 25. I think I voted them at, like, number four in the nation. Is there any – do you ever play that game, or you just you just fill out your 25 nope. and roll with it? No, nope. once once the end of December hits, I go full-on analytics, and mm-hmm. I just let it – because, again, that's why I said I, I like having you guys there to do that. I know Sean has done that in the past, and saying that Sean will, will, will push this team up. They're kind of uh, – 
say this team deserves it, so I'm going to give them a little bit of a bump. Mm-hmm. Knowing it'll average out, and they'll probably end up a little bit lower. I have no problem with that. I think that's a, a real good way of doing things. But once December hits, I go full-on analytics. I split the, the performance rankings with the record quality rankings. Prior to that, I'm very similar to you guys. I am, you know, I look at the performance rankings and the record quality stuff, but at that point, it's so hard to say because the sample sizes are so low. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of I'm, I'm in the same boat as you guys for the first month, month and a half of the season, kind of going based on eye test. But then as we approach the middle of the end of December, I kind of start splitting the eye test with the analytics and then by the time, you know, the end of December comes along, I'm full analytics for the rest of the season. So you guys all heard it here. Eric Haslam is Mr. Integrity with his Rockin' 25 poll. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I, uh, I have, I mean, I guess I could, I could go out there and try to give Wisconsin a bump, being, a, you know, being near my alma mater. But even then, I, you know, I don't, ha- I, I have no, you know, it, it doesn't matter to me if Wisconsin finishes first or 353rd. Uh, I, it's, it's just, they land where they land and there's been times I've seen Wisconsin, you know, showing better spots than, than, you know, I, I, I personally think from an eye test perspective that they should be, but I still go with the analytics in those situations and, you know, I, I let it fly that way. So yesterday was like, you know, we've, we've kind of talked around this a little bit. Yesterday was another, let's call it interesting day um, for a lot of teams around the country, San Diego State Falls, Gonzaga Falls, Georgetown, Oklahoma, North Carolina State, Xavier, West Virginia. I mean, these are teams that are either, you know, I think solidly in the tournament or a little bit bubblicious. You know, who, I I, I guess, let's start with San Diego State, I guess. Um, You know, I had talked with Brian Ralph and as well as Connor Hope uh, recently on Bustin' Brackets where Brian alluded to, you know, maybe they should lose one and take the two seed in the West um, as opposed to maybe the one seed in the East, for instance. Now, with Gonzaga losing yesterday with with both teams, you know, kind of eyeing either the number one in the West or the number two in the West, who who was more hurt by the loss yesterday and where do you think San Diego State can end up? And And is Gonzaga still on the one line? I think the team that was hurt is uh, definitely got to be uh, San Diego State because Gonzaga lost to uh, a, a very, very, very good BYU team that's not only ranked in the AP but also a top twenty-five team for my performance rankings. Mm-hmm. So if you're showing up in both those polls, um, well, I mean, in that poll and also my rankings, it's a quality team, and I think nobody would debate you that BYU is a very, very, very tough team. UNLV, a little bit different story. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that one hurts them. I, I still think Gonzaga probably, they were pretty close. I can't remember what I had, which team I had higher, but they were both on my one line. I had obviously had Baylor and Kansas one and two, and then after that I had Can, uh, Gonzaga and, and San Diego State. Now, after that happened, and again, I use analytics and an algorithm to determine what's called my bracketology deserves, trying to determine who would be most deserving based on what I think the committee is going to find most valuable. After the loss, Gonzaga still remains on that one line. San Diego State actually dropped. Mm-hmm. They fell to the two line after that game, and, and Maryland took over on the one seed. Now, that may not happen. I would think that if the committee were gathering today and looking at the entire body of work, my guess is they would say, how can we penalize a team for one loss? And, <laughs> and, and I think they've done that in the... <laughs> yeah, you're right. And it's, it's, I, I think it's kind of the same way last year. I think Gonzaga was a great example last year of a team that from a resume standpoint and who they played 
how they got above a two line is beyond me. But if that's only if you're looking at resume. I think I think if you're looking in their top fifty or something like that, they only had like four opponents and they split them. They were like two and two. But if anybody who watched Gonzaga last year knew with their eyes that that was a quality quality one seed. So in that situation, I looked at that and said, if you go straight analytics, you're probably throwing them on the two line, maybe the top of the two line. But if you watch them and you know what Gonzaga was about last year, that was certainly a one seed. And I think San Diego State's probably going to be in that boat. Even if they land on, you know, from an analytics standpoint on the top of the two line, I still think they get eye tested up to the one right now. Um, you, you spoke, I believe you and Jonathan both spoke about Georgetown on uh, Rockin' Pregame this past week. They lose yesterday. Is there any... Is there any reason to continue to talk about the Hoyas, or are they they pretty well done? You know, I'm really it's it's kind of a polarizing topic a little bit there because I know Jonathan and another bracketologist, Kerry Miller, were big time on on Georgetown. Had them as high as I want to say like a nine seed earlier in the week or something like that. I I I don't even know if I got Georgetown in. I think Georgetown got really close to being in, uh, but now certainly after that loss yesterday, I think now they're gonna they're gonna be in a bit of trouble. They weren't even in at the Bracket Matrix, BracketMatrix.com. They weren't in yesterday. They were, they were not in with me as well. And now all of a sudden after that loss, they are 11th team out for me. That puts them behind UCLA, Purdue, South Carolina. Hmm. Um, it's a team that's 60th in performance ranking, a 15-12 and 12 record. But again, the record quality, which I think is you know a, a big problem. They're 2-10 versus the top 50, 68th in record quality. It's kind of a shame because they really did overcome key injuries. They they won three or four. They beat St. John's, DePaul. You get that big win at Butler, which kind of puts them right in the conversation. Mm-hmm. They played Seton Hollow hard in a loss, but now you lose two. You, you lose at home to Providence, who's on a roll, but then you can't lose to DePaul, who's really falling apart. And they will get their opportunities here for the rest of the way, but it's it's really tough. Look what they got left. They got to travel to Marquette. They host Xavier. Then you got to finish off by going at Creighton and then at home against Villanova. So you're talking about those last two. Those are two teams that are fighting for for potentially a two-seed in the tournament. So, I mean, it gives them a lot of opportunity to win some impactful games. But, you know, the idea, the chance of them actually coming out of this better than two and two are really slim and not. I would say none, but really slim. So you mentioned you mentioned Xavier, which coming into the season was kind of a, a trendy Final Four team, Elite Eight team, I guess. I, I don't know if I was ever really that that deep into them, but they lose yesterday um, at home to Villanova. They only put fifty five on the board. Uh, currently six and eight in the Big East, seventeen and ten overall. What uh, what are you what are you thinking about Xavier right now? And I'm a big time outlier on Xavier, and there are it always seems that the the, the metaphor, or I should say, like the simile, uh, I guess would be the metaphor I make, is is the tournament is doing an analytical algorithm to determine qualifiers and seedings is placing a ruler flat on a beach ball. It's <laughs> it, you'll never ever completely lay it flat, and just when you push one side down and say, "Okay, I've got it," you look at the other side and it's all blown to hell. And so you try to get as much surface, you know, make as much contact as possible, but that always leaves a few outliers. We saw it last year where Baylor was a team that I think was, you know, I think it ended up on the nine line or something like that where I had them just outside the tournament because I thought the, the selection committee failed to take into account early season losses, which were very damaging for mm-hmm. the Bears. 
UNC Greensboro was another one last year where they really got, I think, in the first four out because of their strength of record. I tried to spin things every possible way to see where they could get close, and I could never get them close because of their performance ranking. Xavier is one of those teams this year, whereas the bracket matrix right now, as of yesterday, and it hasn't been updated today, but they're the bottom nine seed where I, I have them third team out after the loss of Villanova. And they're not the only one like that. I think another one is Rhode Island. Rhode Island is a, is a top 10 seed at Bracken Matrix. I have them as a top team in Dayton. So not exactly as much of a distance from my stuff to Bracken Matrix for Rhode Island. But for whatever reason, Xavier is an example of a team that I look at and say, yeah, I, I, think, I think the metrics that the selection committee are going to look at are going to be far more favorable for Xavier than the stuff that I look at. I look at and say, they're three and nine. I, I see them as two and nine um, versus my top fifty. One and nine versus classic quadrant one. But if you look at the regular quadrant one based off the net, they're three and nine. So I I look at that and go, okay, so they might have a better chance looking at that. But it's kind of like USC was two years ago. Remember USC? Everybody had them on the nine or ten line, and then all of a sudden the selection committee came out, and then and USC was. Plum left out altogether. <laughs> Would not surprise me to see Xavier suffer the same fate this year. So two two teams that I I don't know why I have an affinity for West Virginia. I, I, I've watched probably as much West Virginia as I've watched teams not named Georgia Tech. Um, currently fourth in the Big Twelve, nineteen and eight overall, seven and seven in the league, which which is kind of crazy. You, you know, if you if you were to guess, you would think that their record would be better than that. And then you have Oklahoma, who's right below them, sixteen and eleven, six and eight in the Big Twelve, in in what I wouldn't really consider uh, a, a strong Big Twelve. I don't think. Um, I think West Virginia is is solidly in the field. I, I'll I'll defer to you on that in just a second. Oklahoma takes a bad loss uh, against Oklahoma State yesterday. Virginia has, I'm sorry, West Virginia has now lost five of their last eight games. Are, are either one of these teams completely safe? Is one in and one out, or, or what do you think with these two Big Twelve teams? Oh yeah, West Virginia is definitely in. I, I am at the bottom of the four line, but I could, you know, they have all the what to me of a team that's going to be a classic five seed victim mm-hmm. on the first day of the tournament. That's. That's the concern I have. I mean, I think they've kind of all kicked their coverage throughout the year. I don't think people saw it. I think people saw that West Virginia was going to come back and play far better basketball than what they did last year. Obviously, the players didn't buy into Huggins' system last year. He had uh, they, pl- they started playing better later in the year. Yep. And then this year was carrying over early on and really had, I mean, the number one record quality for a long period of time. Really surprised people. But I think they're starting to come back to who they really are. And it, and I could definitely see them landing close to that five line. And if you're on that five line and you're matched up with a team like East Tennessee State or Liberty or Yale, there's, that's going to be a problem for a team like West Virginia who is not playing their best basketball right now. Oklahoma, on the other hand, I like Oklahoma. Um, I like what they have to offer. There's, I love tandem guys, big guys, guys in the front court. Mm-hmm. Granted, one of them is much more of a stretch four with Manic. But I like the combination of Manic and Doolittle with that team. But unfortunately, the resume just isn't there for them right now. They're fifth team out of the field. I think they still have a pretty good chance to get get their way back in. I don't know if they're going to be in the conversation right now at the selection committee we're, we're meeting today. But I would, would not be surprised one bit to see Oklahoma sneak in and get a play-in game in Dayton. 
And if they get a game in Dayton and they win that game and all of a sudden you're, say, an 11 seed playing a 6 seed against the likes of, say, an Iowa or a Butler or something along those lines, that I still think Oklahoma can be a dangerous team. But at this point, I don't think Oklahoma cuts the muster. I don't think they get in the tournament, whereas West Virginia is definitely safe. They may end up falling back to a 5 or a 6. But at this point, I think they're they're clearly in. Are there any other teams out there that, that maybe you're looking at as far as teetering that we haven't touched on yet? Well, you know, I think Richmond is a team that's teetering. And, you know, an interesting one is going to be Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Arkansas was a team that really, really did well, was hovering right around that nine line. And then all of a sudden, the Isaiah Joe injury hits, and the bottom falls out, and they fall clear out of the field. Now, all of a sudden, he comes back, has a great game yesterday. They win that game. Now they are back in the tournament for me, actually the last team in. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see going forward if they're, you know, if the analytics come back and play some like third or fourth team out, if they don't kind of get that Bonzi Colson advantage where they go and say, well, Arkansas should be in because they lost Isaiah Joe, who is such an impactful player, that we're going to give them a chance to play in Dayton to prove their way in. Wouldn't surprise me one bit if that happens. I want to talk real quick. Um, one of the more interesting things when when comparing your your metrics to things like the AP poll, for instance, um, you have been I don't want to say defensive, but you have basically told people that you know it's not difficult to see that Michigan State is a good team. You look at the AP poll; they're currently you know next next five out, basically you know around the the twenty six yeah. to to thirty range. You currently have them fifth in your metrics. What is what, what what constitutes that big of a difference, I guess, from which I, I would consider the AP poll to be the eye test, whereas your metrics are, are performance-based. Where's that uh, Where's that difference being made? I think the big difference, and this is a, par- a problem that I would love to fix, and, and it's largely because, think of how the Big Ten performed back in November and December. Uh, as a conference, the Big Ten really did well as opposed to the other conference. And, you, and everything in November and December is all this cross-conference competition. Um, once January hits, all the conferences kind of go their separate directions mm-hmm. and they play amongst themselves. That's a problem because a lot of conferences, conference teams, I'm thinking primarily like Florida and Kentucky, are maturing after probably more so than a lot of these Big Ten teams. But an example I always make is when you have, you know, imagine that everybody has an equal amount of chips mm-hmm. on day one of the regular season. Well, if you play a team and you, you beat them handily, you win some chips from them. And if you beat them really, really badly, you get more chips, and you start collecting these chips. Well, it seems like based on the performance in November and December, the, the Big Ten collected a ton of these chips, came away with a ton of, of chips as a, as a conference. And then when January comes... They start playing each other, but now all of a sudden you're just exchanging these chips amongst yourself. There's no way for the Big East or the SEC or the ACC to get these chips back. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of exchanging these chips that you've earned back in November and December because that's when the conference prestige is kind of d- determined. And this is a flaw with the analytics. And the way to fix that would be to encourage more cross-conference competition after the turn of the new year. But I don't think that's going to happen. So as a result of that, the Big Ten did so well. This is why you see Ohio State so high up there, why you see Michigan State and Penn State so high up there. It's because they performed so well as a conference early on that it's just exchanging those chips amongst themselves, and it's, it's 
you can say cannibalism, <laughs> but at the same time, nobody's really losing a lot of ground. And I think that's a problem with the analytics. It's a flaw with the analytics, but it's not one that can really be fixed anytime soon because the NCAA would have to fix it. I know you're not a, uh, a huge betting guy. I think you've probably gotten into it a little bit more this year. But if you were yeah. to put Vegas odds on this year being the year that all four number ones make the Final Four, what what would be the likelihood of that, do you think, in, in, in a season such as this? Oh, boy. All four? I... <laughs> I, would would twenty to one be? I, I, I have no idea. I'm, I know I have no clue. But the, the funny thing is that almost never happens. It has happened. We've seen all number four. I think I can remember one year that it happened. But you know, wouldn't it be kind of funny if this was the year? Everybody said this is the year that where there's so much parity that anybody can win it. it just goes the moment they off. said that, <laughs> yes, yes, and that's what I thought to myself. I don't think it will because last year we had so much chalk last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people who use my analytics to pick their, their brackets, and uh, you know, I, I always joke to them because they say, I'm going to use your analytics for my brackets. I'm psyched up, and I'm looking and go, okay, good luck finishing 305th out of 359 <laughs> or whatever. And because, you know what, it's always my, my 8-year-old daughter or 9-year-old daughter who goes out there and picks the brackets based on you know which mascot has the longer tail, <laughs> and that's the one that finishes in the top 10. That's right. So, you know, I think last year was the exception where a lot of people who did use my metrics actually made some money because there was so much chalk. So it's really hard to say. I mean, it's the tournament is, is as they say, pure madness. <laughs> when you look at that Virginia team two years ago, that was, what, 31-2. and two, They win the ACC regular season championship. They don't even have a lot of incentive to win the ACC tournament, and they go ahead and do that. And then you blow, uh, you know, lose to a 16 seed by 20 in the first round. How can you ever, ever predict anything remotely like that happening? So, you know, when the tournament comes, you try to go and say, based on past precedent, this is probably going to happen. But obviously, past precedent is not 100% correlated with future outcomes. So, mm-hmm. you know, I always say once March Madness hits, it's, it's Thunderdome. Yeah, I don't think that my mother has probably watched a basketball game since I was in middle school, and I would guarantee that she could probably pick a better bracket than I do. And I watch, I don't even know how much college basketball I watch at this point, but I, I, I perform so poorly at filling out a bracket. It is absolutely maddening. Um, yeah. I I, my, wife, my, my wife hasn't done it in 15 years, and she did it... Uh, what, what was it? 2005, I think it was, when Illinois was really good. Mm-hmm. And what what she did is she picked you know, some chalk. She picked North Carolina. She picked Illinois. And then she let her nephew pick one of the teams, the other two teams. And just because the name, he liked it, he picked Louisville. And, of course, Louisville goes to the Final Four that year. And she she's one of the very few people who ends up picking uh, three of the final four. And on top of that, everybody picked Illinois that year. She picks North Carolina just to be different. North Carolina wins, and then she pays for our deck furniture because of that victory. <laughs> and as a result of that, I don't I don't think she has ever competed against me again in the brackets because, I, I, I at this point, in my opinion, she has nothing left to prove. <laughs> and she's already won the whole thing once, and I'm like, I've never won it. So... Um, you, do. you mentioned you mentioned the sixteen and one, so I'm gonna I'm gonna head down that road for a second. Right now, your four number ones, Kansas, Baylor, Gonzaga, and you do have Maryland on that one line. Your your sixteens yep. are Winthrop, Boston, you or BU, I should say, and uh, St. Francis, Siena, Purdue, A and M, Norfolk State being the four teams that would play in. 
Sienna yep. and Winthrop, I think, kind of stick out to me as those 16 seeds. I, I think that we can agree that in a year that's as crazy as this, uh, a 16 over a 1 is maybe not likely, but more likely than it has been in the past. Do do you see any opportunity there for who you have at 16s and who you have at 1s? Yeah, I mean, like you said, Winthrop, that's a, correct me if I'm wrong, but Winthrop holds a victory on the road at St. Mary's, if I'm not mistaken. I believe you do. So, yep. Yes, and I think if that happens, uh, if they get on that 16 line, I mean, you can't take them lightly. It's obviously, we say that every year, mm-hmm. that there's going to be a 16, and we've seen so many years where the 16s just lay down and, you know, each one loses by 30, 35 points. But you can't ever rule it out. I mean, it, it, you can't take anybody lightly. I think the Virginia game a couple of years ago was the wake-up call um, that everybody was waiting for, and that's why it didn't surprise me that there were really no 16s challenging number ones. And I still think that, that the game is recent enough that any coach worth his salt is going to say, don't become Virginia. Go out there and bury this team quickly. Kill them. Don't, don't go on cruise control. Mm. Play hard every bit of the 40 minutes because you don't want to be, become that team that's uh, the second team in history to lose to a 16 seed. Unless, of course, you're going to come back and win the championship the next year, and then it's probably accepted. Yeah, it's, it's not, not a bad trade-off. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Was there any t- other topics that you maybe wanted to hit on before we get out of here? No, I think we've hit most of it so far. So, yeah, I'm just looking forward. we got uh, Selection Sunday coming up here in a few weeks. So that'll be, uh, be fun. And then once uh, the tournament starts, you know, it's, it's really nice to kind of – everybody screams and yells at each other through February and March about, oh, this guys should be in the field, and, oh, you're an idiot because they're a seven seed and you have them as a ten. Once the tournament comes, it's like the, the committee throws everything out there, and then everybody's so focused on their brackets, everybody just forgets about bracketology, and, and then we really start focusing on the games. I love those days. I've always taken those days off, Thursday and Friday of yes, the first sir. round, spend my time at the bar. Uh, just enjoying myself, enjoying the games. You know, hopefully my teams win. But you know, it's it's just a great experience. I love the, I love the tournament every year. It's like Christmas morning for me. It, it, me as well. That Thursday, it's like waking up and you just you know you start cooking and you make sure you got the the good beer and maybe the good bourbon and you know you you put together the meat and the cheese and the crackers and all the snack food and throw the wings in and yes, it's it is exactly like Christmas for sports fans. I. I that first Absolutely. day is, is the one of the best days of the year. I also take those days off, but uh, something I, I can't wait. And then the, the bad part about being impatient for when it actually arrives is that when it actually arrives, that's kind of the start of the end. And then we have to sit around for seven months, which is which is terrible. Yeah, it's it's nice for it, you know, it is a lot of work and so I always kinda of say it's it drags out in the off season, but you know, from once November hits, you kind of go full sprint. There's not many right. lulls in the action. You get a few during like Christmas time, but you know, especially when January hits, it is a sprint. It is nonstop. So I kind of, you know, I'm going to take a little, a few vacations with my wife and wife and kids. Uh, it'll be kind of nice to do that. I like when life slows down, go outside, do some things with kids again. Yep. Um, you know, watching, you know, the, the Brewers for me, watching a little baseball, chilling out, having a beer. Um, you know, no podcast, no podcasts or radio tapings, and yes. so there's a little bit more time to to kind of just do regular life stuff. But it's really nice the distraction for the four or five months to do this, and then kind of take a break. Eventually, like you said, it does get really long and tedious, especially once like September and October right. comes, and everybody starts arguing over preseason rankings. <laughs> but no, it's a, it's it's a fun it's a fun cycle. So I enjoy the whole thing. Yeah, I think you know, in years past, uh, since I since I started ACCBR, I have 
tried to maintain levels of interest and 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 kind of trying to be informative year round and i think that's probably going to change this year because when i got into basically christmas time this year i kind of i kind of burned out because i started doing pods and and writing back in july so i I think once the tournament concludes this year i'm going to take a little break and maybe hit it hard when the season actually starts next year so Yep, I agree. I think that's the best way to do it. I think just kind of put everything away, and that's kind of one of the things I said last year. I knew I had some uh, some improvements I wanted to make to my website. I made a rule to myself. I said you're not you're not allowed to touch anything on the computer once the season ends until I think June or I can't remember if I said June or July. So I made, I gave myself a mandatory two months where no hands off everything. It was you know <laughs> get away from it. You know, go live your life again. You know, mm-hmm. meet the you know meet the wife and kids again, kind of stuff. Um, and I, I'll, I'll probably follow the the same guidelines this year too. I think that's the best idea, man. I uh, you know I just want to thank you again for taking the time to join me on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, you know appreciate all your thoughts. And uh, I'll talk to you around the way. Anytime, brother. Thanks, Michael. All right, man. Take it easy. So that was Mr. Eric Haslam, owner of Haslametrics.com, which is. A metric that, you know, it's another tool to be used, um, a kind of a projective tool, but it is, it is unique in the, in the way that it, it only takes into account things that happen this season. It doesn't identify specific programs like, like Ken Palm has, has a rankings in place when the season actually starts and then you know all that information is funneled into the account whereas eric those teams aren't identified it's just raw data and 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 results driven data performance driven data that happens as the season progresses now obviously you know some things it it takes a little while to get hammered out but it's actually a uh it's actually kind of a beautiful thing to watch how um, the system kind of levels itself out over the course of an entire season. It's, it's a very interesting thing to keep an eye on. And you, you'll see his numbers, his metrics, uh, along with Ken's, uh, along with the net and things like that on the ACC power rankings. Those are things that I've that I've kind of included in, in this season's power rankings, which, hey, well, should be out today or tomorrow. I, I might wait until after the Notre Dame-Miami game to, to get that all the way done but uh i hope you guys enjoy it eric is a just a, a plethora of knowledge like i said can speak intelligently on on a wide range of topics and it's always a joy to uh you know to to get together with him on on thursday nights when we tape the rock 105 pregame with him and sean and, and whoever of the other guys has an opportunity to join us those young guys have a lot going on <laughs> but um <clears throat> You know, I, I hope to have Eric back. He, I, I need to make him more of a regular um, person on this podcast. He's just he's just a good dude to sit down and talk college basketball with. So uh, next week, I have another bracketologist will join me, a first-time guy, but, um, you know, another top-notch guy in Rocco Miller, who is a guy that I, I've never had on, which is, which is a, a damn shame, basically. Uh, Rocco is a great guy, uh, very knowledgeable again, uh, you know, it's it's basically we're getting down to selection Sunday. And I'm trying to provide you guys with as much knowledge and and and, and you know, set your expectations for what we're going to see as fans of the ACC for the upcoming tournament. So you know, again, who knows what even today's game holds or next week's game holds? It's it's you know it's far from decided. There are teams that have moves left that that need to be made, and and certainly some some things could change in the next seven days, and we'll see how that happens. Um, for you Georgia Tech fans. 
I will be at the Miami game next weekend um, in Atlanta uh, for the night. So if uh, if you feel so inclined, give me a shout. And, uh, you know, I, I typically find myself standing on the concourse for about an hour after the game, just kind of bullshitting with everybody. So I always look forward to that. And uh, I'll see you out there. But uh, in the meantime, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. I'll talk to you next week. Later.